And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today, we are going to have kind of an extension of our Halloween tradition, because last week, we talked about serial killers in antiquity for our Halloween episode. But this episode comes out the day after Halloween, so it's kind of like an extension, a bonus, if you will, because that day, which is traditionally known as All Saints Day, but it's also known as All Souls Day. So what better day to talk about ghosts, right? And what better person than Mark Hartzman? author of Chasing Ghosts, which chronicles the history of paranormal activity in the United States and throughout the world. So most people, yeah, you've listened to the show. I'm the open-minded skeptic. Ghosts fall into that category. Uh, I've seen some things that are very interesting and have kind of made me question, but I don't have any definitive proof. Now, hopefully, Mark can give me some of that proof with the stories and the technology and all the different types of things, the history that he's looked into here. Uh, I'm very excited to jump right in. His book was incredible. We're going to get to the meat of it today. So let's pop right in. Mark, thank you so much for being on the show today. So this episode is going to come out on All Saints Day, which formerly was known as All Souls Day, which is the Day of Ghosts. And, you know, right now you're the foremost expert having written the book Chasing Ghosts, which is a book about ghosts. Now, I don't want our audience to get confused because there was a great documentary that came out also called Chasing Ghosts, which is about the arcade industry. Now, did you do any research into Pac-Man and Inky, Blinky, (laughs) Pinky, or Clyde before doing this book? You know, I have a Miss Pac-Man stand-up arcade downstairs, actually. Uh, the actual you know, right? arcade really? machine. Yeah, yeah, I love it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I played a lot of Pac-Man, but no, uh, not not for this book. No, no. Well, you know, it's funny. So you mentioned Pac-Man, and in that you know that particular movie, I was really into a lot of these arcade movies and movies on video games, and I love you know Billy. I don't know if you're into this world, but you know Twin Galaxies is the Guinness Book of World Records for video game scores. Billy Mitchell uh, was both a hero and a villain uh, in that world, and you know it was a lot about these records, these old records from the '80s that were being broken by these video games. But also, you know, I learned that you yourself are an eight-time world record holder in what I believe is called lightweight juggling. You are the world's greatest lightweight juggler, and I say that without hyperbole. <laughs> so you got to tell us, wh- wh- what is lightweight juggling? What is the definition of lightweight juggling? How did you get into that, and how did you train to become the world's greatest? Yes, it's a label I was given by Record Holders Republic, which is a record, you know, world record organization. <laughs> and this started with a, a friend of mine who uh, is the world's greatest knife thrower, fastest and most accurate knife thrower, the great Throdini. <laughs> and Throdini <laughs> holds, I'm not even sure how many records now, more than, more than 30 Guinness world records and other world records as well beyond Guinness. Uh, and he's the U.S. president of Record Holders Republic. So I was talking to him oh, about wow. like, oh, it'd be great to like, I'd love to get a world record in something. And he's like, well, you juggle, right? And I was like, yeah. He's like, maybe something with juggling. But there's obviously there's many amazing, fantastic jugglers in the world. Um, so I'm not going to compete with those guys. <laughs> you know. So I basically created a new category, <laughs> which is lightweight juggling, which is very small objects. like. What, you created the category? Hold on. You were able to t- create I, a category for world records? Established a new category. <laughs> All right. So I All juggled right. cashews. Uh, unpopped popcorn kernels, boiled peanuts, um, uh-huh. shelled, of course, M&Ms, right. uh, goldfish crackers. And and it's hard to do pumpkin seeds. That was actually the hardest one was pumpkin seeds. And jelly because, beans as well. Um, yes. They, they, you know, they pop out of your hand if you're not careful. It's hard because a, a juggling ball will rest in your hand. And there's more for your eyeball to track. You know, when you're juggling, your eyeballs tracks just enough. So you're, you know, helps with coordination with lightweight juggling. 
with a very tiny object, there's a lot less for your eyeball to track. So it's, it's, uh, it has an extra element of difficulty. You know, it's funny because you mentioned that. And as you're walking through it and as I was looking at some of your records, I was hoping you would have juggled chainsaws, but those are definitely not lightweight, no. like maybe lightweight chainsaws. Um, but Goldfish Crackers, you did 86 juggles and uh, three crackers, 30 seconds. That's the official record that yeah. you have. Uh, so first of all, what is a juggle? What is the definition of a juggle? I think a throw and a catch. A throw and a catch. Okay. <laughs> all right. I want to make sure everyone out there understands what a juggle is. Uh, you know, I, I, I love these these different categories. I mean, the different things that you're juggling. But it seemed to me that if you were looking for an easy world record, this almost seems, as you mentioned, the, the hand-eye coordination is a lot harder with something small. It doesn't quite fit in your hand. This is almost what an expert juggler would do to give themselves an added difficulty level because they're sick of juggling, you know, 24 apples and eating them on the way down, you know, or juggling flaming chainsaws, you know, again, right? Uh, This seems more difficult, Mark. Did you realize that as you stepped into it? Because you leaned into this completely. Yeah, no, it took me a while to get 30 30 seconds nonstop. I've been 30 seconds is really long when you're trying to do this. Like, oh, am I there yet? Like, (laughs) no, it's only been 20 seconds. I'm like, are you kidding me? You know, then one bounces off of your hand or something. So it definitely took a while to get 30 straight seconds without losing one. The hardest one was the pumpkin seeds because not only is it small, lacks in color, but it also, because it's so thin, (laughs) they slide right through your fingers. So I have to like hold hold my fingers really tight. And if it's tight, it's harder to have, you know, mobility with your hands. So that was, I know this sounds like almost crazy, but pumpkin seeds because of that were really difficult. So what I did was to train for that, I started with the unpopped popcorn kernels because they were even smaller and even harder to see. In fact, I, there is right. a video of me on YouTube with the unpopped pop- popcorn kernels. And it looks like I'm just going like this because you can't even see it except a glint. Every now and then a glint of light hits a kernel in the air. But I, lo- I look like I'm <laughs> right. doing invisible juggling or something ridiculous. Um, but because those were so small and difficult, by the time I picked up the pumpkin seeds, they felt big in my hand, uh, which made right. it a little bit easier. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't done any um, lightweight juggling in a while, but it's definitely uh, a little more complicated than, than one might assume. I, I mean, I love that it almost seems more difficult. <laughs> I mean, you must have regretted your decision uh, like the day well, after when you started juggling pop popcorn seeds. Like, what did I get myself into? The funny thing is when I did the cashews, they were salted cashews. And so I stood uh, in front of a... I stood in front of uh, Throdini's house, actually. He had a, a black wall. So I stood in front of that just to have less less stuff for my eyes to see. So I could just, you know, have a little bit more to focus mm-hmm. on. But then the salt's yeah, flying yeah. off as they're hitting my hand. So you're seeing like <laughs> salt flying off and that's distracting. <laughs> right. So another like unforeseen challenge. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems I'm actually more impressed with this than I would be with a regular juggler. And I have a certificate. I have a couple certificates framed um, staying my records. So it's nice to have it. It's a good it's a good piece for the wall. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I, I want to talk about ghosts, but we got a couple more skeletons in your closet we gotta to get to. Besides <laughs> obviously juggling, I, I read this on your website. You interviewed Vanilla Ice, aka yeah. Robert Van Winkle, on his tour bus, and you guys discussed aliens. You know, this is an easy, shameless plug for an upcoming book you have about aliens. I'm guessing is he did you interview him for that book? And what did you guys talk about? No, this interview was done. Oh my gosh. Must have been over twenty years ago now. Um, I think I have it just right over there. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> do you really? Yeah, I think I can. I can reach over in a second if you want me to to take off the headphones and uh, step over there. But yeah, a friend of mine was was uh, he was like head of Republic Records, and he was managing Vanilla Ice. In fact, I think if I have the story right, his cousin was the guy who who uh, broke Vanilla Ice out to begin with back in the early nineties with Ice Ice Baby. So, um, so yeah, so, so Vanilla Ice was playing in New York City at Tramps, which is uh, long gone now, but it was a great concert venue in the city. And so my friend Brett said, uh, hey, uh, if you, you know, offer it up for me to interview him because I was doing the zine. I actually met him through this zine I was publishing. He was managing another band called the Bloodhound Gang, which you might remember from I the do. late 90s or early 2000s. Ha- yeah. yeah, that was uh, The Roof is on Fire. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were great. So I met him through that. I'd interviewed them in my second issue. Um, we've been friends ever since. So, yeah, so he hooked me up with the interview with Vanilla Ice. We sat in a tour bus right outside of Tramps, talked for around an hour or so. And, yeah, Vanilla was talking about his theory on aliens and how, he, if I remember correctly, he thinks that we are we are aliens, that, you know, aliens landed here 
way back when, and, and we've evolved into the humans that we are today. Uh, interesting theory. Um, but yeah, that was, that, was, uh, that was a thrill. That was fun to sit and talk with them. Well, I mean, that theory is Kev Giorgio Sukulos and my co-host uh, on my other podcast, FGGBT, kept both of them employed for the past 10 years on Ancient Aliens. So uh, <laughs> Vanilla Ice is, yeah, I don't know if he's right or wrong, but he definitely is he definitely is in line with what people think, or at least people like to watch that television show. Uh, we yeah. got one more. Uh, I got one more for you, Mark. And this is, this is going, this is, you're coming into my territory here because I started out my career as an intern for the Jerry Springer show. I don't know if a lot of people know that or not. <laughs> and you made an appearance on Arrival, although we always considered Oprah to be the rival, uh, but because we were both in Chicago. But you made an appearance on Maury Povich, helping reunite uh, a bearded lady with her biological son. Uh, I got to tell you, I want you to tell me a little bit about this. I'm going to put a link to the video. I'm going to find all these videos and put them up on my website as well. But the most shocking part of this to me, and you got to answer for this, Mark, was that you were a, a reporter for AOL News at the time. That was the most shocking part to me. I didn't even know that they had a news <laughs> section. Uh, but tell me about this. Yeah, actually, she just called me yesterday um, to chat for a little bit. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah so she's uh, uh, a bear lady who grew up you know, with in the sideshow since she was around five years old. Um, she's in her early 70s now, so this goes goes back a ways. And I had written a book called American Sideshow that came out in 2005. So I met her then because she was one of the people I featured in the book. And it just covered sideshow performers going back through history. Now, uh, I want to pause you for a second. If you're watching the video, uh, if I can just point to the behind you, looks like you, is that a copy of the book Circus or is that a different book behind you? I'm seeing up and to your left. I see a big thing that says circus. That's a different one. This is okay. American Sideshow. There it is. Right okay. Yeah. American Sideshow. That's the book. Uh, pick it up today. At yeah. The local book yeah. Um, I'll see if I can find her really quick. So, so yeah, so here she is. So I'd written about her um, for the book and we stayed in touch over the years. And here she is in the book. <laughs> that's her yeah she yeah, has yeah. i mean she's in the guinness book ripley's books i mean she's she's the real deal you know so then fast forward a few years and i started writing for aol weird news which was really a lot of fun just doing freelance articles on kind of like the sideshow beat basically because i had <laughs> the these great connections within the sideshow <laughs> community um you know from yeah. the book I, I know a lot of these these amazing people so it was fun to kind of follow up with them and find out new stories meet other people as well of course and so around that time, I got an email one day from Viv, uh, Vivian's son. And I knew that she had a couple children from my interview with her from the book, but um, hadn't gotten too much more into that. And so I got this email from a guy saying that he, uh, he'd been adopted um, when he was you know, a young kid, grew up in foster homes, and had wanted to find out who his real mother was. And so he went to, uh, I think you know, do some investigations and find out, I guess, I think he was living in Kansas, if I remember correctly. And so anyway, they, uh, whatever that department is, I forgot the details at this point, whatever that department is that kind of has that information, got back to him finally and with some information about who his real mother, his biological mother was. And, uh, and it, it gave her name, you know, described her as having werewolf syndrome, which was an interesting term. Um, you can imagine his surprise. Yeah. Wouldn't use that today, by the way. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's you know, it's a condition called hypertrichosis, you know, that would cause that kind of growth. So it's a little more normal. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so he was trying to track her down and he'd seen that I wrote this book and he reached out to me at that point I was having trouble finding her cause she's kind of has moved around a bit. She's, you know, uh, you know, her phone numbers change. Uh, it's, it's a little, it can be hard to keep up with her, but I knew she lived in Bakersfield, California at the time. And I was trying to reach her, couldn't reach her at that time, but Another friend of mine, uh, George the Giant, um, who's also in the book, uh, who's a, a giant. <laughs> he was in the movie Big Fish. No relation to Andre, I assume. No, no, no. <laughs> if you ever saw the movie Big Fish, the Tim Burton film, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. he's the smaller giant in the movie. Uh, okay. The one who's in the circus, <laughs> okay. who then the bigger giant is like, oh my God, there's an even bigger giant. Uh, but George is great. So he lived in Bakersfield as well. And he came across Vivian in the park one day. And told her, hey, you know, because he got the same email we talked about and said, hey, do you think this is for real? And I thought, like, I don't know who would make this up. You know, there's nothing to gain. You know, it's not like she has money to take from. Like, there's no right. reason for someone to make this up. And I knew she did have a son. That um, sideshow fortune. 
Yes, right. She's only only PT Barnum made money. Yeah, <laughs> so many people did make money, but she, she, you know, she did not have a, a big fortune still on. But um, but George told her what was going on and said, hey, you know, he's trying to reach you. Helped uh, helped put them in touch, and then when they finally got in touch and reunited, I wanted to write the story about it. So uh, I got in touch with both of them and did this great story for AOL Weird News, um, which was really one of my favorite stories I've done for them. And in it, she mentioned that she wanted to go on the Maury show to have the maternity test to prove that she was the mother. So Maury's <laughs> right. producers... What they were known for. For, pe- for. for people listening, that's what Maury Povich is known for, if you aren't aware of that. If you've been living under a rock for the past 40 years, <laughs> that's what the show is known for. Uh, yeah. DNA tests. Anyway, continue. Yes. Yeah, so, um, so the Maury people called me like that day the article ran. And they're like, hey, we want to have wow. you on. <laughs> so I was like, great, let's do it. Boom. So Did it, yeah. Vivian doesn't fly. She took a train out from California to Stanford, Connecticut, where they, where they film. I live nearby, so I drove <laughs> up there and uh, got to – so she's on stage with her son. I'm in the front row, and I get up at one point and say something. You know, Maury asked me. He's like, Mark, what did you – you know, says something to me. Uh, and then we all went out, you know, had dinner afterward. Um, it was great. It was a, a pretty incredible experience. And just a nice thing for to feel like I was a part of her reuniting with her son. It was after 33 years, if I remember correctly, or maybe 30 years they had oh, been wow. uh, apart. Yeah, he had been taken as a child by his father, who they were had been separated or divorced at that point or something. And he ran off with him. and uh, And then he ended up in foster care and eventually got adopted. Well, and I think because I just watched the video yesterday, actually, the, the kind of tragic part of that is she didn't believe she could have kids and wanted them. And then she has one. And then the, the guy she wasn't married to at the time just takes him away and puts him in foster care, which is a brutal yeah. story. And it's also this is a group of people that have been exploited for, for so long. I mean, you were able to bring happiness uh, to, to that particular to that particular person. I think that was that was a great thing on your part. Um, and kind of the theme of a lot of stuff that you do. I mean, like it's you you and I are kind of into some of the same types of things. I mean, your whole lit, your whole catalog of, of books is pretty <laughs> incredible. Uh, but, you know, it's there's there's kind of this, you know, it, it's a great you get a great feeling when you're done reading them because these can be kind of exploitative. Uh, some of these books, some of these topics, some of these subjects in general, including, you know, the one you just wrote called Chasing Ghosts. Uh, you know, I was a big Ghost Hunters fan in the early 2000s. And, you know, it's funny because I've got a mixed, you know, anyone who's listened to the show knows I'm an open-minded skeptic. I've had kind of a, uh, you know, a mixed relationship with some of these kind of um, stranger phenomenon. I, I want to believe, I would love to see evidence of them, but I'm always find myself on the fence with any real evidence. And a lot of these shows, you know, as you find out, as a, you know, I work in television, a lot of the stuff, it's it's produced, it's massaged, you, you know, people are putting on a show, uh, you know, the whole spiritualism movement, which we'll get into in a little bit, uh, was basically just that. It's, you know, magician, Ill- illusionists pr- tricking people into believing that ghosts in the afterlife were real. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot to this book, but I think you do a great job of, you know, keeping it nice and fresh and great history, but also, you know, showing light on the dark parts, but not really focusing on them. I like that approach to it. So what made you want to do ghosts in general? I mean, like, what would what would kind of bring you to this as the next book, um, you know, especially doing Sideshow and weird eBay stuff and, you know, <laughs> things like that? I mean, for me, it's all kind of connected in, in my love for the bizarre, you know, and the weird and weird mm-hmm. history. So, uh, you know. The idea of, of survival of consciousness after death is something I've always kind of wondered about. I've always been a little fascinated hmm. by that since I was a kid. What happens when we die? Are we, is that it? You know, when we get put in a box and buried six feet underground, are we, is that wrong? Is that like a huge mistake that billions of people made over the course of human history? Yeah. Is our consciousness like trapped in this box? These kinds of things were like, you know, kind of freaked me out a little bit as a kid <laughs> or cooked alive when you get cremated <laughs> I mean, like right, that's even like, worse oh, right God, yeah what did yeah. i make this decision for <laughs> no i i blew it this yeah. is eternity i don't know right. so i mean who knows right we have no answers to these things but uh, my imagination kind of runs wild so so that was like just sort of an early i guess you know seed that was planted i guess you could say but then it was really the uh spiritualism movement that you just touched upon it got me really interested in this topic. And I got into a little bit in my last book, The Big Book of Mars, which was also with Quirk Books, um, a little bit of spiritualism with uh, mediums who were saying their spirits to Mars and describing what Martian life was like. Uh, and then I started just buying all these Victorian-era spiritualism books, which I love. I mean, they're from the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they've just got – they all have these amazing titles and, and you know artwork, and st- obviously the stories inside are great, especially – 
one of them, one of them I have is called the next world interviewed and it's all interviews with spirits from beyond, you know, famous people, um, just different luminaries from the time. Benjamin Franklin, for example, gives all these new aphorisms from the afterlife. Edgar Allan Poe is writing poetry from the afterlife. And it's like, he's like a changed man, basically. He's like, oh, I'm so macabre in life, but there's all this wonderful light here. And, you know, I've changed my ways. And <laughs> it's just amazing yeah. how these mediums uh, would write in these different voices for them. And, you know, I think it always just trying to push their own, uh, you know, in some ways pushing their own religious agenda. You know, this is, you know, be, be follow follow this religion and and live a better life and there's this great afterlife that awaits you and you know that's not such a bad thing I suppose, but um, but yeah I was just kind of amazed by the movement and it kind of overlaps as I mentioned with Mars in another way, um, so one thing with that book the the thing that kind of got me into that book as a topic was this idea of belief in intelligent life on Mars from the same period like late 1800s early 1900s with like the world's you know greatest minds very seriously believing this and trying to get their communications and send our own communications. And how might we do this? This is like Tesla, Marconi, guys at Harvard, like brilliant people, not just, you know, um, some random crackpots here or there or something. This was like a real thing going on. (laughs) So here you have this time period where people, and this is all over the headlines. Ghosts were all over the headlines. Martians were over the headlines. So you have this society where People must have really believed, you know, we had millions of spiritualist believers. So people believed in intelligent life on Mars. People believed in talking to the dead. You had all this technology sprouting up, telephones, you know, voices are now traveling invisibly from one place to another. Radio is sending signals invisibly. Um, the phonograph is recording voices. So it's like a whole world of new possibilities and new technologies. And it kind of makes you think like, well, was it that much of a stretch to think that maybe there's Martians and, and you know, uh, communicating with the dead as well? Um, so that that really kind of got me going. And then obviously the book expands from there to uh, earlier histories and obviously what's been going on in more recent times. So I I just I just love all of it. Just the the mystery and the wonder of it all. Well, you know, it's interesting, Mark, because the thing that really ties both of both of those together, both spiritualism and the stuff on Mars, is that there were so many hoaxes that were involved. Uh, it escapes me right now who wrote uh, this great hoax about uh, what they saw. You know, telescopes were coming, uh, you know, into the consumer market, really. So you could have kind of anyone looking into the stars. And they claimed to have seen all of this life on Mars. And they wrote this op-ed piece that I think appeared in the New York Times or some major newspaper of record that was explaining all of the things that they were seeing on Mars, which a lot of people believed, you know, I mean, it's kind of that war of the worlds type of thing. When you place something uh, ridiculous in the form of some kind of news or a thing of authority, people start to believe it. And the same thing was true with spiritualism. Uh, so I do understand the connection there. I mean, I don't think people might right off the bat understand that connection, but I, I think you're right. I think that there is quite a connection there. Um, you know, and the other thing, I, I we can't talk about ghosts. We can't talk about your book without talking about Ghostbusters, which was such a popular movie uh, in the 80s, something, a big influence on me growing up. Um, You know, I wanted to be, I wanted to have a degree in parapsychology like Dr. Venkman, uh, because he has two degrees. He's got a doctorate in psychology and parapsychology. And from that moment on, I actually thought you could get a degree in parapsychology. And I do believe for a period of time in the 70s, you could, although I never did. Uh, Was this movie an influence on you? I know you kind of mentioned it briefly and, you know, joking, I'm mentioning it, but I feel like this really brought a lot of ghosts, parapsychology, the, the belief in the unknown to the forefront at that particular time. Yeah, I think I think it absolutely did. I mean, for me personally, I remember seeing it when it came out. And to me, it was just it was a fun movie, but it didn't it didn't send me down a particular path, I would say. But I do believe that it sent a lot of people like like you just said, oh, is this something I can actually pursue? Um, And I think it's one of the things that really got people into trying to just use their own equipment to go hunt for ghosts. You know, suddenly they realize, oh, are there different pieces of technology? And maybe I could go do this also. Not to the degree, obviously, that the Ghostbusters had with their their crazy, um, you know, tools and everything. But still, you know, using different things like, uh, you know, spirit boxes, EMF readers, all these different kinds of tools they're used to detect or, you know, capturing EVPs, um, which I get into all that into the book. Um, but, yeah, I think that Ghostbusters had a huge impact on why we have so much of this going on today. People grew up wanting to do that and then pursued it. 
Yeah, you make a you make a good point there. It is a lot of the technology, right? It's the proton packs. It's the the I think it's the EKG meter with the little sides that go up. Um, even that weird device that Peter Venkman brings into uh, forgetting her name now, uh, but Sigourney Weaver's apartment, and he's got the little suction cup, and he's like. While he's going around her house, I don't know what that's for. They never mention it again. But it's the technology, these little gadgets. It almost gives them, um, like, like this, the a feeling of authority that they know what they're doing because they have this scientific equipment that they know how to use that no one else not only knows how to use it and knows what the heck it is. Uh, so that is a really, a really uh, big thing there. But I think you know, also the the other universal appeal here with ghosts is that a lot of people at least claim to, have experienced them, have seen them, or have had some kind of unexplained experience that makes them believe that there's something going on. Even if they don't believe in ghosts, like full, you know, what did it say, full torsoed apparitions in Ghostbusters, uh, you know, maybe they don't necessarily believe in that, but that there's something weird going on. And I think a lot of Americans, I wish I, there's probably a poll, I should have pulled it up in my research, but I think a lot of people believe this And, you know, it's not uncommon for people to want to explore the things that they're interested in or that, you know, pique their curiosity. And this definitely falls into that category. So, I mean, did did you have you ever experienced a ghost? I mean, is there or anything similar to that? Is that kind of what sent you on this path or just the idea that other people have more so that other people have it? And I'll just just to back up a second with Ghostbusters, that was all inspired by Dan Aykroyd's family because his his uh, I think his grandfather was a spiritualist so he grew up around spiritualism and all the different you know people coming to his home mediums all he he grew up all around that so that whole movie comes out of spiritualism movement uh, if you think about it in that sense um, but for me and I talk about this in the introduction to my book I can't say I think that, that I've personally seen a ghost but what's interesting is is how many people have, like you said, and I mentioned a YouGov survey from 2019 that said 45% of Americans believe in ghosts. Um, and as I was just telling people about the project as I was working on it, like just friends and coworkers, like, oh, working on this book project, and so many of them would tell me about their own personal ghost stories, which I, I give a few of them in the book. Um, these are stories I'd never heard from these these friends or coworkers before, but all of a sudden it's like, oh, I, I got to tell you about my own ghost story, you know? And they were yeah, really yeah, interesting yeah. to hear. And and these are just regular people. Um, you know, they don't come across as someone who's like, oh, that's a, you know, they're going to believe in ghosts. Like, that's something weird or anything like that. They're just completely regular people, smart people, um, accomplished people. But they've had these amazing experiences. And a lot, you know, there's not, there's not like a good explanation for like how that happened. Like, oh, that's just because of this. And so many of them revolve around children, um, around childhood, what people, what kids are detecting. There's one, um, one of them I talk about is from some friends here in town. They have uh, two daughters. And when the first daughter was, was just a little kid, like three or four, she would, t- she would tell her mom that she was seeing a lady in the house, like going up the stairs and coming into her bedroom and looking over her. And it was scaring her. And so after a while, the mother's like, she, I don't think she's making this up. You know, it just, just seems like she's really experiencing something. So she asked this ghost to leave and the ghost seemed to have left. And when they had the second child as a, as a baby in the crib, they would see the older daughter said that she saw the woman again and the little baby would be tracking, her eyes would be tracking something moving across the room as though, as though something was moving across the room. Like, what is she looking at? There's nothing over there. Um, and at the same time, the, the sister is saying that she's seeing something again. So once again, she said, uh, they found out that the woman who lived there before had two kids and they had all passed on. And so she thought maybe this person is trying to look over my kids now. So she said, hey, I know you're trying to help, but I, I've got it. I'm their mother. It's okay. You're scaring them. Please leave. <laughs> and that seemed to yeah. stop it, you know. So, I mean, how do you, you know, how do you argue with a baby that, that can't even have, would have no reason for these kinds of ideas yet, you know. But yet yeah, seems to have some sort of interesting reaction to something. Um Maybe there's another explanation, but, you know, again, not sure. But, yeah, there's there's all kinds of fascinating stories out there. Some of them can very well be explained by things that we just don't realize. Uh, again, some of those topics in the book, things like infrasound, electromagnetic fields, things mm-hmm. that we don't realize are yep, there consciously, yep. but they're there. And then our mind has to make sense of these things happening in some way. And so it tends to go into the world of ghosts, which in some cases, yeah, maybe that's all it is. But sometimes it's not. Well, it's interesting because there's... 
There's several different types of ghosts, also, which you go on and you talk about in your book. You have ghosts that uh, seem to replay a pattern over and over again, like some traumatic event, you know, almost like uh, a record player on repeat. You've got some ghosts, like you just mentioned, that seem to have some level of intelligence where they are reacting to things in the real world. Uh, in some in some way, uh, and then you have others that are like poltergeists, which are you know using seemingly being able to affect the real world. Either it's by moving objects or by inflicting um, I don't want to say uh, pain, damage. Like you can see them strike people. You you, know, you can see welts on people um, either through energy or whatever. There's weird stuff going on. But there's very three almost distinct categories. I'm sure people who are really into this have other categories. But that's how it seems to me. And it's also very odd, you know, when you look at the fact that there's lots of places in the real estate world where you have to disclose that a house has been haunted or people think it's haunted. And I believe the Exorcist house uh, just went up for sale recently. I'm going to put mm. in a link on, on the website for that. So, you know, and that was the, you know, the ultimate haunted house. Uh, you know, I did a whole episode of Fascinating Nouns on Ouija boards. I am not a believer that they're a gateway to the devil or hell. I think that that's all marketing that people have kind of bought into. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a tool like anything else. And it started out as a parlor game during the spiritualist movement, which is based on uh, chicanery anyway. But, um, you know, it's still interesting. You know, uh, the extra house is interesting. And I'm not talking about the one from the movie. I'm talking about the actual house where the story took place. Um, uh, I believe it's like in Washington, mm. D.C. or someplace. So, so it's, it's interesting to me that my point is that you have this seemingly impossible thing to really explain or prove, and yet it affects real-world real estate laws, you know, people's uh, ability to buy a house. That's strange, you know. Um, what, do you th what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it is pretty amazing how ghosts can actually have an effect on the physical world in one way or another. I, I have a friend, uh, I mentioned her uh, briefly in the book, who told me that whenever she goes into a new home to, to buy a home, she gets a sense, like she can feel a presence in there or not, whether it's good or, or negative. Oh. And she'll she'll make a decision based on that feeling. If she feels something negative, uh, she just won't buy it, thinking that like this place has some sort of spirit in it. I don't want it. Um, and she'll she'll go by that. So that's like a, a basis for decisions. I, I get into another story in the book about a ghost in West Virginia. It's called the Greenbrier Ghost. It was around... Uh, uh, late 1800s and this was a, this was the one story where the law actually listened to the testimony of a ghost and you know produced a verdict out of that <laughs> so basically uh, the story in brief was this woman who was murdered by her husband um, had her neck broken and he basically hid the fact that her neck had been broken was able to get the body buried without anyone really doing any investigation or anything small town you know again around the turn of the century um, and the woman's mother started having dreams shortly after being visited by the ghost of her daughter who was showing her what had happened and telling her that, you know, her, her neck had been broken in four places, showed her her neck turned around like Linda Blair in The Exorcist, just spinning right off of that. Like, this is what she saw in the dream, you know. But she didn't survive the, the twist. No, no, it was like, look, my neck's broken, you <laughs> yeah. know. Look, look at it swivel. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> Not an hour. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's the actual story that was told at that time. So the the woman, the mother, told talked to the authorities and said, "This is what happened. You know, I had this this dream from my you know the the ghost of my daughter. Her name was Zona. Had come back to me and shown me this, and so she convinced them to exhume the body of Zona. And sure enough, they found the neck was broken in four places, just as uh, the ghost had described to the mother. And after that, uh, the husband was arrested and and put in jail. Uh, he was convicted of the crime." So it's one example of a ghost actually having an effect on the real world and putting this man in jail and really having a ghost, uh, you know, have its revenge, which is kind of a common theme you hear in, in ghost stories, a ghost coming back to right or wrong or something like that. And here it actually happened, which which I love. So, yeah, I do. I do love that ghosts can have a real impact on on our behaviors. 
Well, this is, I'm glad you brought up this story. Number one, the coroner in that story is Dr. George Knapp, who I'm sure you know uh, is definitely one of my favorite um, hosts on Coast to Coast AM. Um, he, he, that guy knows a lot about UFOs in, in, in uh, Las Vegas. Um, just a, a, a great knowledge there. Um, but also in this story, you know, you, it, you mentioned that, you know, it's justice and this probably, you know, this probably, this was probably legitimate. And it's also, I believe you mentioned, it's the first ghost to give testimony in U.S. history. Uh, now, this story, may, this may be accurate and this may have been a good thing. However, I think, you know, that opens up a can of worms, especially, you know, before this time. I think this happened in, uh, I don't have the date in front of me, um, but it was probably after the witch trials, the Salem witch trials in oh, the yeah. 1600s. And, and, and those were, you know, that was what was called spectral evidence, mm-hmm. which was people saying, oh, a ghost did this, or, you know, they were able to basically make up stories, say it was a ghost that was brought into evidence. And people were not only convicted, not only put to jail, but put to death over that. So, you know, I think the door swings both ways on this. Um, and you know, it's tricky because I think the Greenbrier ghost that you mentioned, I'm guessing, you know, given everything that you mentioned, I think this guy's name was Trout, Edward Trout Shoe, hopefully no, hopefully no relation to Elizabeth Shoe. Um, but you know, maybe this worked out. Maybe she did have visions, maybe came from someplace else. It seems like he had a shady history. So I think things worked out here, but again, you know, not to belabor the point, I think this is, this is one of those tricky topics where when used correctly, Maybe it's a way to see things that humans couldn't normally see, but when used incorrectly, it can be used as kind of an oppressive tool um, to spread, you know, BS to get people put into jail or executed. Yeah, I mean, the so this was definitely after the the Salem witch trials. That was you know late 1600s. This was toward the end of the 1800s. Um, I do talk about the the wizard trial, uh, the Salem wizard trial in the book, which was the same. Same thing you were just saying. It was uh, when the young girls had a vision from a ghost that told her that this man had uh, was was a wizard, <laughs> and and they put him on trial and he was pressed to death, as opposed to hanged like the witches were. It's Corey uh, Corey Giles, I believe, who was the famously the only male who was tried in that. I'm trying to find right. it in my notes now, but I think he's the only male who was tried. He was pressed. He wasn't drowned or burned at the stake or whatever was happening to to everyone else. Um, and so it is an interesting story. But also, I believe I just heard this on one of my other favorite podcasts, Stuff You Should Know. They were talking about the Salem witch trials, but he also, I think, testified against his wife in that. Um, and then recanted his evidence. So he was kind of an interesting character. I don't know if he deserved to get pressed. I don't know if they deserved to get called a wizard. Uh, but that, he was kind of an interesting character. That that whole that whole situation was just bizarre. He he definitely he had a shady past as well. Uh, he either I forgot now because it's been a while since I wrote that part part of it. But he either murdered someone or beat someone severely, uh, like twenty yep. years prior yep. to that. That's right. And so this may have been a little bit of revenge again. So maybe it was a little bit of overdue justice. But yeah, maybe pressing to death wasn't, you know, may or may not have been a little <laughs> much. But yeah, I mean, again, yeah, these ghosts can can do harm. There's another case just in terms of affecting the real world. This is this is a slightly different kind of case. But one of the stories I found especially fascinating was from 19, uh, 1921 or 1924. Um, there was a man named uh, Thomas Bradford, who committed suicide in order to prove that spiritualism was real and that we could definitely communicate from the dead. So his idea was, hey, I'm going to, I'll just show you, I'm going to connect with someone, I'm going to plan this in advance to connect with someone from the other side and I'll kill myself and then I'll do it. And then that will awaken everyone to the powers of spiritualism and the truth uh, of spiritualism that this is basically the biggest breakthrough in humanity. So he had found someone to work with him, basically put an ad in the newspaper saying he was looking for a partner in this kind of thing. It's like early Craigslist or something, you know, and a woman responded right, to it, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. oh, OK. But but she responded to it not thinking this was I don't think he revealed his entire plan, this ad. She thought this was more of like a psychological experiment, like, oh, OK, I'm interested. And they met. They had a big yeah. conversation. And his thing was like, I have to bond with this person and have this connection. Right. And somehow he felt like after one meeting that that was enough, which seems a little bit you know, odd, like, like oh, maybe Oops. someone you grew up with, yeah. you know, or like a relative. I was, right. <laughs> surely there was someone else you could yeah. do this experiment with, but this was how he did yeah. it. And then he, he wrote this long paper, um, basically, you know, again, I'm a student of spiritualism and, uh, 
and killed himself in his apartment and left the the, the note, you know, the, the like like a whole pamphlet, you know, of his thoughts and beliefs. And the woman um, was obviously surprised that this actually happened, but she did respect his wishes and held a seance and claimed to have gotten a message from him. Uh, of course, you know, choose to believe whether or not that message was real. I think most people did not because fortunately, uh, no one, there were no like copycat cases I came across where people said, oh, I'm going to kill myself and go talk to people tomorrow. You know, <laughs> like, thank goodness that right, didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. But it's amazing that, that his beliefs took him to that extent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, talk about the ultimate commitment to a cause. I mean, you know, it's it's crazy because he has asphyxiated himself with gas. And in that story, what's interesting is that I believe her name was Ruth, who he got in, in touch with, who was his partner. She was, you know, they kind of were, the cops were looking at her as being complicit in his in his suicide, possibly responsible. So, you know, I mean, I think there's probably something else going on know. with him. But what a mess for her, right? I mean, you know, she just wanted to figure out what's going on with the afterlife. Yeah. And all of a sudden she's caught up in a murder caught a case yeah. uh, as they say um, there's one other story I wanted to talk about uh, before we get into the technology that I thought was interesting and that's the story of the bell witch and I like this story because two reasons number one it's a really interesting story number two uh, I think I mentioned this on a previous episode but my grandmother gave me uh, this book called The Unexplained. It was a small little book you get from like a grocery store checkout line. And in it, you know, there's several, you know, several stories like this, several weird stories. Um, and and they're very short, you know, one or two pages really like in brief. But the one that always fascinated me the most was Mother Shipton, uh, which is totally unrelated. But the second one is The Bell Witch. And, you know, you outline this really well, uh, obviously in much more detail. This one is kind of interesting because there's a lot going on. Um, you know, you got Andrew Jackson is involved <laughs> in this story. Uh, you know, you've got poisoning possibly involved. Uh, maybe, you know, it, this may be spiritual. This may be a ghost. It may not be. It may be the um, the the psychotic other personality of one of the kids. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot going on in this story <laughs> from start to finish. So let's try to walk through yeah, it. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a little bit like Carrie, you know, the Stephen King story. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> yeah, all kinds of totally stuff going weird, on. Yeah. So yeah, just <laughs> yeah. so this is a story from starting in eighteen seventeen in Tennessee, and it was a family, the Bell family. That was, you know, the head of the family was John Bell, and he had uh, several kids. One of them was Betsy Bell, about fourteen years old at this time. So I mentioned Carrie because uh, one of the themes, you know, you hear this from parapsychologists that poltergeist, even though poltergeist means a noisy ghost, that's like the translation of it. Poltergeists are considered to be more uh, coming from the living, from within. So they, they would use the term uh, RSPK, recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. That happens a lot when teenagers are going through puberty and you have all this emotion pent up and maybe some sort of um, uh, event that's, that's gone on that maybe has added to their already to their stress, some sort of mental stress that's already going on just through puberty. And that can be pent up and it can be released in this spontaneous you know, psychokinesis, which can move move objects, you know, cause things to fly across a room. You mentioned that earlier. Um, and there's there's a lot of these cases documented where it happens to be around the teenager. So like again, like it's like what Carrie was doing in Stephen King's story. So there's some belief that that this all may have been a poltergeist coming through Betsy Bell at this young age. But this the things this ghost uh, was reported to have done are just remarkable. It kind of escalated over time, over the months that this was going on. Where it's you know whispers become full on voices, gossip. It, the ghost is gossiping about everybody in town, which is kind of crazy. I mean, even if right. this was her, where she yeah. get all the information from? Um, <laughs> right. Definitely causing yeah. scratches yeah. on the face, moving furniture, um, uh, all all kinds of just like totally bizarre things. And the Andrew Jackson story is really interesting because he this was before he was the president. He was a general still, and one of Bell's sons had fought with him previously, so. Jackson heard about the Bell Witch and uh, wanted to see it for himself. So he goes over to the Bell House with his entourage and they're having a dinner and they're having just some nice, you know, chit chat, small talk, whatever. But but Jackson's getting a little antsy. He's like, well, where's the ghost? You know, like I'm here to see a ghost. I don't really care that much. About <laughs> see the some action, whatever. Yeah. So He's, he wasn't a patient man from what I can yeah. tell, Andrew Jackson. So one of his yeah. buddies could call himself the witch tamer. He had his gun. He's like, oh, you know, show me the witch. I'll, I'll take care of the witch with his gun. And so at that yeah. moment, he feels like something grab him from behind and all these like, you know, uh, feelings of pins being pushed into his back. And 
he he yells out that he's got this you know this weird pain going on and the ghost says i'm right here in front of you you know go ahead and shoot if you want and he goes to shoot and the gun doesn't work the gun that you know the ghost somehow stopped the gun from working or whatever and the guy freaked out and like just ran out of the house and you know never came back and andrew jackson was like this is awesome i want to see more <laughs> <laughs> I love that the guy named the Witch Tamer, who I believe had silver bullets in his gun, he came prepared. Yeah. I mean, for wh- for whatever, I don't know, I don't know if he's turned into a werewolf or not. But it's, I mean, one little thing and he's out the door. Yeah. I mean, that's some witch tamer. Well, he must have I been mean, convinced, right? Like, oh, I, I thought this was all BS, but wow, something was going on here. So yeah, so all this stuff is going on. I mean, it's just you know one one effect after another, and eventually it does end in the poisoning of John Bell. Uh, believed to have been the witch. Uh, basically, this is a ghost story that ends in murder, which is also pretty crazy to have happened. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah, some yeah, belief, yeah. this was a parapsychologist from the 60s writing about this, talked, to, or maybe maybe even earlier, uh, believed, he believed that this was Betsy Bell and it may have been another side of her, you know, uh, he, I think he called her like the, the Betsy X version, you know. So it could have been something going on, <laughs> something going on mentally, but also with a little bit of RSPK sure. going on. And he thought that maybe the, the um, and this was all speculation on his part, but he wondered if maybe she had some, uh, that he, she had been sexually abused when she was uh, very young by her father and had this sort of line dormant mm-hmm. in her. And this came out as mm-hmm. this rage when puberty hit. I mean, again, this is just a parapsychologist offering his thoughts, but, you know, interesting theory that maybe something more is going on. The other thing, just, just to add to the story is that, None of this was written down until about 30 years later when the youngest of the Bell family wrote down the history of his, his family, basically. And so then it just kind of became legend. Now, let me pause you. Th- let me pause you there. Because uh, I think I have written down this happened 74 years after the event because he was 60 at the time and wrote it when he was 80. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe I, maybe I wrote that down wrong, but I thought that was a significant amount of time after the events. 30 versus 70 is very, very different. Yeah, I thought he had written it down about 30 years later, but then it came, I think. Did it come out? People started talking about, I think it came, I think people Ah, started paying more attention to it later. Got it. If I remember correctly, but yeah. I don't think he wrote down that much later. Okay. Oh, that that makes sense. Very significant. Uh, Yeah. I was wondering, you know, when you're 70, when you're 80 years old and your memory's failing, that's not the time to write down the events from your, (laughs) from your single digit years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Right. Uh, But I mean, it's such a fascinating story because, you know, I mean, I think the witch ended up the John, the the father ended up having a swollen tongue uh, and the, the witch tripped him and he fell down the stairs and later poison was found in the house. You know, I mean, it's, yeah. th- this is clearly not a ghost that's doing it, but it's just such a fascinating story. You know, it's kind of like, like kind of like the Fox sisters, right? I mean, they had the world convinced that ghosts exist and were knocking all over the place. And even when later on, I believe one of them admitted to, you know, using her knuckles to crack and make the noises. No one believed her. You know, people yeah. believe what they want. You know, it's that confirmation bias that we deal with. You know, we're still dealing with today. Um, totally. You know, so let's talk about. You know, before we're out of time here, we got to talk about some of the technology because you know uh, this is kind of you know you mentioned go. We started off talking about Ghostbusters, and I think you you really you really hit on something there because it's the technology that's fascinating. Because if you have a scientific mind, you know, if you're superstitious, you know, a knock on the door, you know, it's a glint in the side of your your peripheral vision, that'll convince you that there's a ghost. But for someone skeptical, for someone who's got a scientific mind, you need hard evidence and you gather hard evidence with technology, with devices. And that's what always fascinated me. Uh, you know, I still, I'm still skeptical with some of these, you know, EVPs and, and, um, and you know, these, uh, what, what do you call them? With the OEPs, uh, electronic voice phenomena where you're hearing voices in static electricity, Frank's box. I don't know how much I buy into all that. But, you know, Earlier on, people were still really interested in this, including, you know, Thomas Edison. And he wanted to create a spirit phone, which was, you know, basically like you just, uh, you know, I don't, you, you showed me a phone that you bought for, for an interview that you did, uh, a landline, one step up from a rotary. But it'd be like picking up one of those and talking to a ghost on the other side. Uh, this is kind of interesting. So tell me about how, how and why Thomas Edison, the greatest American inventor of all time, was interested in ghosts. This was announced when he made... Just a uh, hundred and one years ago, uh, oh, October, October of nineteen twenty. No kidding! Um, Look at that! What an anniversary! Yeah. Hundred and one. Wow. Yeah. So you know, it's kind of funny when you think about. It. Like Edison was the guy who put the first human voice recorded, right? He recorded yeah. the first human voice of someone living 
I yeah, like the yeah, idea yeah. that he was trying to now record the first voice of someone dead as well. I mean, that would have been like a resume <laughs> capper, right? Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but yeah, he made this announcement. Um, again, this was spiritualism was very popular in 1920, early 1900s. And he just had this feeling that if a spirit was going to talk to us, why would it bother with something like a Ouija board or going through mediums and lifting tables? He just thought that was all nonsense. So he did want to put a more scientific uh you know, look to this this whole phenomenon to see if this could be possible. And he had this belief that we're all made up of what he called life units, like a hundred trillion life units make us all up. And they're just busy workers that keep us working and functioning. And when our bodies wear down, they just move on. Like the conservation of energy was sort of, I think, the basic principle he was getting out there. But he called them, he called these life units. You know, interesting thought. Maybe that's kind of what reincarnation might be as well. Or the, you know, the soul. I mean, again, just different ways to phrase things and think about things. So he said he was working on this. He um, supposedly did have experiments with this with other scientists in his basement that uh, was reported years later from, uh, I think, Modern Mechanics magazine talked about this in the early 30s, that he had had this back in the the 20s, obviously before he died. Um, So it's interesting. I mean, some people thought he may have just been joking and grabbing some headlines because spiritualism was all the rage and maybe he just capitalized on that. I don't know if Thomas Edison needed to bother grabbing headlines. I mean, he was Thomas Edison. (laughs) Yeah, he could do that pretty much by walking into a store. Yeah, he was. Yeah, exactly. But I I love the fact that he was he was talking about this and it made for some great headlines. Just the idea of Edison trying to talk to the dead with a spirit phone. But yeah, I mean, these efforts have never stopped, uh, which which I love. People have been trying to to break through in some way or, you know, use technology to show how um, what people think are paranormal uh, experiences might not be possibly. I mentioned one earlier infrasound, which I love yeah. because you mentioned, yeah. you just mentioned this idea of someone seeing a glint of light, seeing something and thinking it's a ghost and someone else saying, well, maybe there's something else going on here. Let me look into it. And that's what this guy did. His name was Vic Tandy and he was a, a British, British researcher working in the late seventies uh, around early eighties and he was at a warehouse one night and he had been told that this place was haunted, that people saw shadowy figures and had these experiences there. And so he was working late one night and he happened to be a fencer and he had a match, like a competition or tournament the next morning. So he brought his fencing foil to work and he had, I think, in a vice and he was going to polish it. And he stepped away from the desk, comes back and the, the foil is like wobbling back and forth. And, you know, those things are super thin. It's like, well, why is this happening? Is this is this what's going like? Is there something going on here? So instead of assuming a ghost was practicing fencing or something, he he put his scientific mind to work and he discovered that there was this industrial sized fan that was working within this factory or this warehouse. And it was producing what's called infrasound, which is an 18.9 hertz wavelength that that we would never be aware of. Like you don't hear this or feel this in any way, but it affects us in all kinds of ways that we don't realize. So he he discovered these studies about how it can make the eyeball vibrate. Again, you wouldn't feel your eyeball vibrate or anything like that. It sounds kind of horrifying, but it's just so (laughs) small that, again, it's something you can't perceive, but it's having this effect on you. So that might cause you to see shadowy figures. And why am I seeing shadowy figures? Must be a ghost. You know, again, your mind makes sense of things. It causes fear. Movies use infrasound um, Mm, to create fear in the theater. And again, you don't realize it's happening, but you have a sensation of being scared. So he took those results and started exploring other areas to see if he could find infrasound in other places believed to be haunted. And sure enough, he did. There was an exa- I gave a couple examples. One was a haunted cellar from, a, I think, a 14th century cathedral in England. People saw a ghost at. He f- took his equipment there and found infrasound. Same thing with like narrow hallways. All these like haunted house tropes, he starts finding infrasound in. And, and he was also one to say, like, I'm not saying this explains everything. But it might start to explain some things of why we're experiencing what we think are ghosts. So I love the fact that you have science that could explain things. But at the same time, not everything. There's still a lot of mystery left over. You know, that uh, Vic Tandy, I wrote this down. It, it seemed like very Scooby-Doo-like, you know, like where you're scared, you creep around this haunted house and then you find out it's like a fan upstairs. You know, it's like, you know, it's just right. very much like a like a Scooby-Doo adventure. Um, you know, one <laughs> of the things that uh, I wanted to get to that I thought was super interesting uh, were two things. Number one, 
the idea of catching ghosts on camera, which became a whole thing, uh, William Mumler. Um, I like I, I like it as a concept, you know, just not to spoil the ending here, but this is during the spiritualism movement where it's double exposures, typically what a lot of these guys were doing because they were doing it on command and you could kind of get your picture taken with Abraham Lincoln, you know, with, you know, uh, trying to think of other people who were alive at the time. But, you know, and then they found out that a lot of the ghosts that were appearing were, you know, the guys, the mumbler's cousins or whatever, like that was <laughs> such a great little thing. Uh, but we see a lot of these anomalous things in, in pictures now, which I thought was interesting. But, you know, I wanted to mention that briefly, but the thing I wanted to talk about, which is this is kind of right in the, the you know, kind of right in the wheelhouse that we're, that, that we're kind of discussing here, uh, was Dr. Duggan, uh, Duncan McDougall, McDougall, probably McDougall, McDougall, McDougall. Now, he wanted to see how much the soul weighed. And I've heard lots of stories about this. You know, there's been, I'm sure, lots of research that's done, which is kind of macabre, uh, where you basically find someone who's on the edge of death and get a very accurate <laughs> weight. Uh, and then they breathe their last breath, and then you weigh them again to see if the soul has any weight. Um, you know, it, it's it's kind of dark, but in some ways it's really interesting because people got numbers, right? Like there is a discrep a weight discrepancy. Um, I just find this really interesting. What do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I love these experiments he was doing. You know, and he started off he started off doing it at places where people were basically on their deathbed, you know, yeah. and thought, okay, well let's see let's see the weight difference. And he did, he got the results. I I think it was around twenty three grams or something, if I remember correctly. But um yeah, right. he did find a little bit of a difference. And and it's you know kind of amazing to think about that. And then uh, there was a, a psychical researcher of that era who wrote a ton about this, was involved with a lot of different mediums named Hereward Carrington. And so he was also working with different technologies and he was a very busy guy. The psychic uh, howler, I believe, is what he called The psychic his, howler uh, was one, yeah. <laughs> one of them, yeah. So I the, love that name. The greatest name for a piece of equipment ever, the psychic howler. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Made for good headlines. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he told McDougal, he's like, oh, why don't you work on Maybe maybe find like criminals uh, who are going to you know uh, be, you know work on them or something. He was trying to find someone that was more um, healthy, full of life. Yeah, <laughs> yes. More, exactly, before we removed they, it, yeah. <laughs> before they're so old that maybe the other things are going on or something like that. So he wanted to find like healthier bodies to start with, and yeah. you know try experimenting with those. But yeah, I mean McDougal had his had his results, and um, you know he believed he had weighed the soul. And it's interesting that he got. There's a parallel I talk about in the book of Sir Walter Raleigh, I think, with Queen is Queen Elizabeth the first, if I remember this correctly, he's basically saying he could weigh uh, find the weight of smoke. Um, and yep, so he used a cigar, smoke. basically like we're gonna weigh the cigar, we're gonna weigh the ashes afterward, and we're gonna see what the difference is and found a difference. And I think it was a similar thought, like there's so smoke weighs something. Um, and the soul weighs something that there's something there. So I love these experiments. I think it's great. And there's still, I think these kinds of things are still going on different kinds of research. I, I talked to, uh, executive director at the Ryan research, uh, uh, center, and he talked about different experiments in terms of trying to weigh the soul that, that, that were still going on in recent years. So people are still, you know, ghosts have never gone away. You know, the, even the more science we get, the more technology we get, it's not like we have answers and it's not like people stop seeing ghosts. Uh, it's just been with us for all of humanity, which I find also quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, you know, you because you mentioned some of the first ghost stuff. I just tweeted something out, uh, and I think you saw it. The first um, tablet with a, a ghost image on it. it, like it's a carving of a ghost that's part of a, a tablet, a Flintstonian type tablet <laughs> series of about exorcism, uh, and it's the first real record of ghosts. So, I mean, this is this is way back in the human history, uh, you know, and it, it's it's fascinating. And the last thing I want to talk about before we go now, I. I it's a Frank's box. Uh, it's the EVPs. It's kind of the modern, the modern era. Now, this I have to say, I'm kind of a skeptic on these. This is, I think you use the word in your book, uh, aprophenia, which is the idea that you can hear patterns in audio sounds, uh, which is similar to uh, pareidolia. Is that? I'm probably saying this wrong, um, but that's the Jesus on toast type of things. Where it's also called matrixing, right. where you know you look at clouds and you're seeing what you yes. want to see. Uh, I like the Jesus yep. on toast. That's my favorite. Or the Virgin Mary on toast. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so funny because, you know, not not to discredit or discount. My grandmother was Catholic. You know, I grew up in a religious 
religious household. Uh, and while I don't believe in it now, uh, it is funny to think that of all the ways that God was going to show you his presence, it would be burning a toast in a specific way. Seems, I don't know, that doesn't seem <laughs> like uh, his style. Um, water like and he wine. He was out of ideas. <laughs> right. Let me, yeah. Let me try the toast thing. <laughs> People I seem to dig this. Yeah. He's switching yeah. his style up, going on TikTok. Um, so let's talk about <laughs> the Frank's box here, uh, because this is really, I'm going to kind of talk about this in a generic way, but it's basically, a gen- it generates white noise. And then within that white noise, the idea is that the energy of that, the ghost takes that energy and then can manipulate the, the digital print. I liked it better when it was actual tape and you could think that the that a ghost or some form, anything that could manipulate energy would actually manipulate the magnetic particles. That made more sense to me than a digital than the digital route. Uh, but anyway, tell me about this and, and, and how this came to be. Yeah, I mean, this was, again, the idea that maybe the ghost can find its way through one of these frequencies as it's going back. And basically, the guy like had to break a radio so it could just cycle back and forth through all the different fre- mm. frequencies. And mm. then let's see if it can just latch i guess like latch onto a frequency and leave its impression on that and that would be recorded you have to record that or maybe you could i I think early on maybe they thought they could hear but usually they would record it listen back and see what they're hearing but then you do have um that that you know apophenia where basically your mind is making sense of the patterns it's hearing to something familiar so i think you have that effect where like oh i think i heard hello and then you have groupthink added on top of that so if i tell you I just heard hello. Do you hear hello? And you're like, oh yeah, I hear hello. Yeah, of course I hear I, hello. I think I gave the example. It's like, um, it's like uh, you hear that in songs a lot. You know, like Jimi Hendrix, uh, "Excuse me while I kiss the sky." If you say, <laughs> right. "Oh, I'm hearing," "Excuse me while I kiss the sky," yeah. you can't. This guy, like, you can't, can't not, not hear, hear that it. anymore. Yeah. <laughs> right? Beatles so, songs a lot with that. Beatles songs too. You know, yeah. Paul <laughs> is dead or something. Like, I right. bury oh, Paul. I yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think. I think there's that effect that can happen, uh, which makes it tough. But I give a few examples in the book to try to get around that. In one case, well, first of all, there's also our, our, is someone else just saying something. Is it picking up another voice um, through another frequency? So some of the early EVPs, it was like, oh, I think you're just picking up like a, another radio frequency that's come through that you're just caught. And that's, that's what you're hearing as opposed to a ghost. Uh, one parapsychologist I talked to, paranormal investigator, he said his team, they... Um, he gets voice prints of everybody so that they can verify the voice prints oh, of each person on the team. So when they hear something, they can check the voice print, make sure it doesn't match. So they know no one's like screwing with them. And he got interesting results at the Merchant House in New York City, which is famously haunted. Um, that seem like real answers to, act- to the questions they hmm. asked, which is interesting. That but is my favorite example of this whole idea of spirit box and, and this uh, ability to communicate through, through the frequencies is um, a couple of, of guys who worked at the Stanley Hotel in Nestus Park, Colorado, which is where, of course, Stephen King uh, was inspired to write The Shining. So they were paranormal investigators who led the ghost tours for years and got to know the different ghosts that they were experiencing at the hotel. And they came up with a different method. So rather than like playing with the spirit box, recording stuff, listening back and hearing things and deciding what you're hearing, um, they, they kind of split up. So one guy would have a blindfold on sensory deprivation, had headphones on, and would listen for anything coming through that spirit box. And if he heard something, he would say it. So whatever he heard, he'd just say it. Before he could think about it, before anyone else had an opinion, he'd just spout out what was coming through uh, his headphones. And meanwhile, there was someone on like another room who was asking the questions. So the guy answering, the listener, he's not hearing the questions at all. So he's just giving answers, then they come together and they find out what the questions were. And if the answers match. In some cases, they got some really interesting results. There was one case where a guy held up four fingers and said, how many fingers am I holding up? And the listener was spouting off like, you want numbers, numbers, and starts shouting out a whole bunch of different numbers. Oh, that's crazy. Wild. I mean, yeah, we'd like to think the ghost, if it's there, could see four fingers. But again, who knows what a ghost is? And maybe it was sensing something. I don't know. But I love the fact that they tried something different and got these results. And someone else I spoke to at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia, also famously haunted, used the same method, um, this Estes method, and also got pretty spooky results. So, again, interesting. Like, it does seem like there would be explanations for why you might capture EVPs and, and uh, decide what they're saying. But this seemed to be an interesting way to avoid the pitfalls of a normal EVP. 
I mean, I, I love that idea. I, I mean, Estes Park, uh, I've, I've been to the Stanley Hotel. It is quite a fantastic hotel. The thing I love about it, if you've ever been there, uh, you know, in the movie The Shining, the um, the hedge maze takes a, a very prominent role without any spoilers uh, in that movie. <laughs> and the real Stanley Hotel has a, a hedge maze that's roughly about two feet tall. So you can literally just step over the hedge maze. It's not quite as... They just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just started a few years ago. I yeah. Think, they started, I, think, I think they really started to embrace the shining a the lot shining? more that makes sense in the, in the past yeah. few years yeah. that, that makes sense yeah. <laughs> so it's very small uh, hopefully it'll grow up one day um the other thing yeah. you know that that i, I think I, I love that I, the method uh, of what they did there i think that that's a really cool way to do it it kind of cuts out all the stuff you mentioned but also it's interesting to me you know with that example about the numbers we still human beings love to anthropomorphize stuff whether it's your dog or whether it's a ghost why would a ghost have eyes why would it sense the world the way our eyeballs sense the world? And have eyeballs. Right. It's a ghost. It's energy. Yeah, if we believe, if we're going to live into that paradigm, you know, we have to extend the paradigm completely. Um, it's not going to hear like we do. It's not going to sense things. It's not going to see things. Um, and I think people forget that. Uh, I think it's an easy thing to forget. So, uh, but anyway, I mean, it's it's just a lot of fun stuff. And this, you know, we've barely scratched the surface. Not only you know of of ghosts and that whole phenomenon, but of your book as well. It's called Chasing Ghosts. Easy to remember and probably even easier to get. So if someone wanted to get a hold of it or get in touch with you, how could they do that? Yeah, it's available any bookstore you go to. Um, of course, go to Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, bookshop.org. Any, any you know independent bookstore should have it. Um, so yeah, readily available. Just came out a month ago. Um, but just in time, obviously, for Halloween, which is you know happening right around this you know this weekend, which is exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find out more about me at my site, markhartsmanbooks.com. Uh, you'll see more about Chasing Ghost, uh, some, you know, see some imagery from it and uh, some reviews from people. So, uh, you know, lots, lots of stuff there and, and my other books as well and, and other weird things I've written. So <laughs> lots of lots of interesting stuff. What about Twitter? You got the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram? Yeah, Twitter. Um, yeah, I'm just on Twitter. I'm at, at Mark Hartsman on Instagram. I'm at Mark Hartsman. I also have a site called WeirdHistorian.com and you can find more uh, weird stuff there, obviously. That's great. Easy to get hold of. I love links to all of that stuff. And you have a top 11 list where I pulled some of the stuff from the beginning of the episode, including Vanilla Ice. Uh, I'll have a link to all of your the world records that you've held, uh, which is pretty incredible. Uh, there's lots of stuff there. Mark, you are an interesting character. I imagine you will make a great ghost. Hopefully that won't happen anytime soon, <laughs> but I think you'll make a, quite a fascinating ghost. And I expect Thank to hear you. from you from the other side uh, in 40, 50 years or 60 years, whenever that is. <laughs> uh, but until then... I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was great. You got it. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you've got to subscribe. You can find us on all the major podcasting platforms. And if you don't have a favorite podcasting platform, never fear. We got you covered. You can go to fascinatingnouns.com, scroll to the bottom, and you can find every place you can locate us and find one that fits your lifestyle. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go because it is also there that you can find the show on YouTube. Yes, we have a live video version of the podcast now on YouTube. YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn is where you find it. And that is not the only place where you can find the show on social media. We got links to our shows, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, YouTube, and of course, Instagram right there. Fascinatingnouns.com is the place to go. And if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.